this morning in this place, we praise you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We come before you an imperfect uh, people uh, standing in your grace and in your mercy and in your love. We approach you because of the blood of Jesus and because of the salvation that you have provided, not of ourselves, Lord, but because of you, all because of you. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. May our hearts sing before you, may we bow before you in this place, may we worship the true and living God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. I lay it all down again. To hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. No one else will do. 
nothing else could take your place so feel the warmth of your embrace help me find the way that brings me back to you
find the weak and contrite heart, shoulder its burdens, and carry it into the light, and Jesus, I need you every moment, I need you. kindness has never failed me. Christ before me, Christ behind me. Remember love, remember mercy. Christ before me, Christ behind me. Your loving kindness has never failed me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, and Jesus, I need you every moment, I need you, hear now this graceful heart sing out your praise. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is in your hands. We didn't have to work it out or even figure it out, but through your power and your grace, you brought it into us through faith. We thank you that in life's journey of faith that you provide helps, that you lift us up when we stumble, that you carry us when we're too weak to go forward. Thank you that it's a partnership, that you provide us access to your throne of mercy, that we can pray for ourselves and others. Thank you that you are willing and able to do all things through us because you strengthen us through your son. We thank you for this time of worship and fellowship. May our hearts be swelling with the excitement of being with you in this hour. Bless a pastor as he opens your word. May we hear it clearly in our spirit as you work in us. As we bring an offering, may it be yours completely and may we see how uh, you work through it. So we thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. In what is questionably the best-known line in C.S. Lewis's most famous 
Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund had entered the magical kingdom of Narnia through a wardrobe in their uncle's home. In exchange for her enchanted Turkish delight, Edmund had already given allegiance to the evil white witch, and he sneaks off to join her while the three other children go to the home of the beavers, a wary but hospitable pair. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children that soon they would be taking them to see the king, Aslan. Lucy asks, is, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mrs. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good. That's the problem sometimes for us. Many would prefer a God who is good, or who is safe than one who is good. The message that seems most likely to sell books and fill stadiums today presents an image of a fun God who amuses and entertains, who fulfills our desire, who makes us feel good about ourselves, to forget our troubles for an hour or two on Sundays. It's a portrait of a God that doesn't expect too much and seems concerned with making us feel safe and secure and comfortable, a safe God who will follow our lead and give us what we want. But that's not the Jesus we find in God's word, where he spoke so openly of things like denying self and carrying crosses, of serving others and putting their needs before our own, of caring for the poor and the hurting and the outcast above ourselves. Jesus' concern was always the needs of others, not merely fulfilling desires, even when it meant calling them out when they were going astray. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the man for others. But this desire is nothing new. Whether it's Demetrius of Ephesus shaping his wood and stone and metal into the shape of his idols for sale, or that smiling face on TV, or perhaps even behind the pulpit promising how to be happy and fulfilled and prosperous, mankind has always tried to shape our gods in our own image. What we think he should be, rather than let him shape us into the kind of people he created us to be. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. As Voltaire first said, in the beginning God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. 
In the book, The Jesus Way, Eugene Peterson warned of the temptation to define our lives in consumer terms and then devising plans and programs to accomplish them in Jesus' name. Without the cross, Christianity becomes something else entirely. And we find a bit of this tension in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In the passage I want to read this morning, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and his appointment with the cross. Many were attracted to him and believed that he was heading there not for Calvary, but to claim the throne, to free them from Rome, and to set up a new golden age. And who wouldn't want that? He was going to take care of their problems. He was going to fulfill their desires. He was going to make them happy. And so in verse 57, it says, As they were walking along the road... A man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This man was most likely attracted by the crowds, the attention, the miracles, all the excitement. Like most people, he assumed that if Jesus truly were the Messiah, it would mean great reward for his followers, blessings and prosperity, not rejection and suffering and death. It was when Peter tried to impose this same understanding on Jesus in Matthew 16 that Jesus actually rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan. That view of God is a stumbling block. I cringe when I hear people cheapen the gospel by making God little more than a Santa Claus who will meet our needs and make us happy and give us good parking spaces when we ask him to. But then that's the safe God talking, isn't it? Of the three men in the passage that we're looking at this morning, this one probably catches us most off guard because he's taking the initiative. He wants to join this Jesus movement, not because he needs a savior, but because he saw it as a safe bet. And he's the one Jesus Jesus discourages. I always want to ask, why should we expect following Jesus will mean he's going to fulfill my desire and fix my problem. When Jesus replied to this man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay our head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now there's some discussion whether or not this man's father was already dead or was he simply pointing out his family obligations. Indeed, the crux of the matter seems to be that this man is claiming he has all these other obligations in life that have to come first. He did what so many seem to do, dividing life into different areas, each with its own place and priority, competing with all the others. So there's the family life, and there's the work life, and there's the friends, and there's the hobbies, and over there's religion. Just one more thing on the list. Again, it's the safe God talking, and Jesus challenges it. After all, what's more important than the state of our soul? And so Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I'm too busy right now. I've got too much on my plate, Lord. Again, it's the safe God talking. Just wait a while. Once everything settles down and is in order, then things will be different. 
Then I'll have time to follow. Then I'll get involved. Like the rich fool in Jesus' parable who built bigger barns to store all his wealth and thought he had all the time in the world, but he didn't. God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will have, get what you have prepared for yourself? In Matthew 16, Jesus asks, what good is it if we gain the whole world and yet forfeit our own soul? For those seeking the safe God, are you willing to pay the price of not following him? So Jesus replied, no one who puts his a hand on a, to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In each case, these men were trying to set the conditions on God to domesticate him, to make him safe. I'll follow you, Lord, but first, I've got this other stuff. Imagine how the conversation might have gone if they happened today. Follow you, Lord? I don't think so. Follow you where? How long are we going to be gone? Is it safe? Have you made your hotel reservations yet, Lord? Did you purchase your travel insurance? Can I use my points? I don't know what to pack, Lord. What's the weather going to be like? What am I going to wear? What if I don't like the food? No, Jesus, I think I'm going to sit right here where I know what to expect. I'm going to stay put until you come up with a better offer, until it's safe. And so here we sit, and here we wait, and while away our lives on other stuff, wondering whatever happened to God in our lives. As Brent pointed out last week in his message on Philemon, change is what following Christ is all about. Making us a new creation. Henry Blackaby said, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. You cannot continue doing things your way and accomplish God's purpose in his ways. Your thinking cannot come close to God's thoughts. For you, do, for you to do the will of God, you must adjust your life to him, his purposes, and his ways. Dallas Willard pointed out most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have not yet decided to follow Jesus. The essence of Christianity is discipleship something that's really consistent throughout the ministry and life of Jesus. Whenever he called someone, it wasn't to adhere to a set of beliefs or say a prayer of confession. It was to follow me, he said. In other words, become his disciple. That's what disciple means, a follower, an apprentice. So when he first calls Peter in Matthew 4, his words are, Peter, you follow me and I will make you into a fisher of men. And then the very last thing he told Peter, in fact, he told him it twice in John 21, was forget about what others are doing, you follow me. When he called Philip in John 1.43, he said, Philip, follow me. When he approached Matthew in Matthew 9, it was with the words, follow me. He told the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, come, follow me. He told the crowds in Luke 9.23, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. And in his charge in the Great Commission, it's not to go and make converts or get people to believe certain things, but go and make disciples, help people become my followers. 
Pastor Erwin McManus said, a Christian is to be defined not so much by a set of beliefs or by a creed, but by following Jesus. Sometimes, you know, we don't listen to what we're really saying. In July of 1997, the Victoria Sun published some excerpts from actual courtroom cross-examinations where the lawyers apparently weren't paying attention to what they were saying. Hopefully, Jeff, your son doesn't do this. Never. Never. One asked, now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? (laughs) Another asked, the youngest son, the 20-year-old son, how old is he? And another, were you there when your picture was taken? But my favorite was, Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, doctor, is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. But how can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. (laughs) But... Could the patient still have been alive nevertheless, doctor? Well, I suppose it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. (laughs) Sometimes we just don't think about what we're saying. We don't hear what we're saying. I wonder if these three men in Luke 9 heard what they were saying. They called him Lord. Lord means he calls the shot, not me. They offered to follow him, but then they immediately said, but first let me take care of these, setting conditions. I will follow you, but. Were they really offering to follow Jesus or inviting Jesus to follow them? Imagine these three standing before his throne one day telling him, Sorry, Lord, I would have followed, but it wasn't safe. What about us? Are there areas of our life where we're trying to place conditions on God to make him safer and the path easier? Areas where we're saying, Lord, I'll follow you, but first, you fill in the blank. Let me quote, close by reading an excerpt from a book titled, Your God is Too Safe, by Mark Buchanan. I reckon this, the idol of the nice God, the safe God, has done more damage to biblical faith, more damage to people coming to faith, than the caricature of the tyrant God ever did. The despotic God howling his rage, wielding punishment with both ransacking destruction and surgical precision, at least inspired something within us. We were afraid. We wanted to appease. But this milquetoast pampering deity is nothing but a cosmic lackey, an errand boy we call to make our golf games pleasant or to help us escape reality for a little while and then summarily dismiss. Worship him, revere him, die for him, believe that he died a cruel and bloody death for us? You must be kidding. One of the main ways the devil blinds us is through the cult of the safe God. 
The safe God has pretty much killed the power of recognition in us. And so when the real God comes into our midst, we mostly don't even bother to look up. The safe God has no power to console us in grief or shake us from complacency or rescue us from the pit. He just putters around in his garden, smiles benignly, waves now and then, and then mostly spends a lot of time in his room doing puzzles. But God isn't nice. God isn't safe. God, Scripture says, is a consuming fire. Though he cares about the sparrow, the embodiment of his care is rarely doting or pampering. God's main business is not ensuring that you and I get parking spaces close to the mall entrance or that the bed sheets in the color we want are miracle of all miracles on sale this week. His main business is making you and me holy. But neither the safe God nor the tyrant God are the real God. The God who truly is, who seeks you and me, who desires our holiness, is far more loving and comforting than the safe God. Our Father, help us to see you not as one who is safe, but who is good and will do what is good and right and pure. Help us to grasp hold of you, the true God, who loves so much that you gave of yourself, that gave of your Son. A God whom we can follow. A God who we can live for as his followers. Help us to do so, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. O gentle Savior, hear my humble.